palatial ultimatesportstalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show for this Thursday night, our weekly get-together to talk about everything that's happening around the world of sports. And you can join in here this evening just simply by sending me something over the social media. My email address is dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send me a tweet out to ohbbcohost. My Twitter address is at ohbbcohost co-host. Well, Mark Donahue is going to join me on tonight's show for a reminiscing time of Yogi Berra, who passed away earlier this week, the New York Yankee great. He's going to join us here in just a little bit to talk about his remembrances of Yogi, one of the greats. Another NFL game is on tap tonight. A baseball icon, as I said, has died. And a former number one pick in the NBA draft has been cut. All this and more coming up on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first... When you come to a fork in the road, take it. You can observe a lot by just watching. And it ain't over till it's over. All of those were beneficial to the life and career of Yogi Berra, one of baseball's greatest catchers and characters, who as a player was a mainstay of 10 Yankee championship teams and as a manager. He led both the Yankees and the New York Mets to the World Series, losing in Game 7 both times. But he may be more widely known as the ungainly but lovable cultural figure inspiring a cartoon character. I bet a lot of you didn't know that. I bet a lot of you thought that he was named after Yogi Bear, when it was actually Yogi Bear that was named after him. And he issued seemingly a limitless supply of unwittingly witty Yogiisms. Well, Yogi passed away on Tuesday. He was 90 years old. He had been living in an assisted living facility in nearby West Caldwell since 2012. Barra was an all-star for 15 straight years. His skills were underestimated. He was a well-built, 5-foot-7-inch guy, appealingly open-faced man whose physical appearance was often belittled, but he was a prolific winner, a successful leader, and players whose intellect was often made fun of and questioned. But he didn't seem to care. Major League Baseball insider John Heyman tells us about the things he remembers about Yogi Berra's life and his career. Yogi Berra obviously was a great ball player and a great Yankee, but he was more than that. Uh, he was an icon, an American classic. He's going to be remembered as much for his great sayings, his witticisms, many of which were paradoxical, as his great ball playing. But what a career it was. Fifteen straight All-Star appearances, 18 All-Star appearances in all, three-time MVP. 358 home runs. Uh, he's an all-time great catcher, ranking right up there with Mickey Cochran and with Johnny Bench, Mike Piazza, and all the other great catchers. But beyond that, Yogi Berra was an American classic. Berra was a, a very fine man who, true to his word, stayed away from Yankee Stadium for 14 straight years after George Steinbrenner fired him 16 games into the 1985 season after telling Berra, that he would keep him for the entire season. And Barra did stay away until George Steinberg came to New Jersey, called a truce, came back to New York, and that was a great thing. When he came back 
to Yankee Stadium and spent all that time with a new Yankee dynasty with Derek Jeter, Bernie Williams, Andy Pettit, particularly Jorge Posada, who, who loved, absolutely loved Yogi Berra. And it was great that Yogi came back to, to New York and to uh, the Bronx and Yankee Stadium and spent all that time toward the end there with all the great Yankees. But I think Berra, as much as a ball player, will be remembered for all those great witticisms, very, many of which were paradoxical. Uh, it's getting late early was a classic. Uh, it's not over till it's over, which is really one of the catchphrases of that you got to believe 1973 Mets team, which people forget Yogi Berra was the manager of that Mets team. So he was a very fine manager, very fine coach, great ball player, but more than anything else, he was a great human being who's going to be remembered for all of those great things that will live on. And one of my favorite Yogi Berra-isms, uh, I guess you would call it, is when someone gave him a check and it said, he read the back of the check and it said, pay to the bearer. And he said, after all these years, you're my good friend. How do you not know how to spell my name? Obviously, it's B-E-R-R-A. No one will forget that, but this is a guy who will be remembered as Yogi. Uh, one name was all that was necessary for Yogi Berra because He's an American classic, a true hero, and a Yankee great. One time when he was a manager, he said, if you can't imitate him as he was advising a young player who was mimicking the batting stance of great slugger Frank Robinson, Yogi said, if you can't imitate him, don't copy him. Nobody goes there anymore, he said of a popular restaurant. It's too crowded. Well, on defense, he certainly surpassed Mike Piazza, who many think is the best hitting catcher of all time. And only Roy Campanella, a contemporary rival who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers and faced Barra in the World Series six times before his career was ended by a car accident, equaled Barra's total of three Most Valuable Player awards. And although Barra did not win the award in 1950, his teammate Phil Rizzuto did, he gave one of the greatest season-long performances by a catcher that year. Get these numbers. He hit 322, smacked 28 homers, and drove in 124 runs. In the first game of the 1955 World Series against the Dodgers, the Yankees were ahead 6-4, to four, and in the top of the eighth, when the Dodgers' Jackie Robinson stole home. The plate umpire, Bill Summers, called him safe, and Barra went berserk. If you've ever seen the film, you would have seen it. Barra never got the moment. More than 50 years later, he signed a photograph of the play, for President Obama, and on it he wrote, Dear Mr. President, he was out. During the 1956 series, again against the Dodgers, Barra was the catcher for Don Larson's perfect game, which was the only perfect game and only no-hitter in World Series history. We want to welcome to our Ultimate Sports Talk microphones here this evening, Mark Donahue, who is also my co-host for the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show on Monday nights at 9 o'clock. Mark, thanks for joining us tonight. Yogi Berra, Passing away just yesterday, a big loss for Major League Baseball. What are your thoughts as you look back and you remember over the life of Yogi Berra? Well, I remember a guy who appeared in more World Series games than anybody else. And a guy who he played in 18 different years and was in 14 World Series. Think of that. Played 18 years and was in 14 World Series. Uh, what he accomplished kind of under the radar uh, is really astonishing. And I went back and looked at some numbers, and I, I think I think most people would agree, and, and it was clearly in evidence uh, a couple months ago when Johnny Bench was considered one of the four greatest living players and the greatest catcher of all time. Uh, 
But uh, Reds fans, uh, I hate to tell you something, if you look at the stats, uh, you would question that. Uh, just to put this in perspective, the question was, what do I remember about Yogi Berra? He was a great player. Sometimes it's lost uh, because of all his quips and, and funny lines that he was kind of a character and he wasn't a good player. He wasn't a good player. He was a great player. And if you if you use Johnny Bench as the measure of, of greatness behind the plate, uh, throw out some numbers here. Uh, Johnny Bench hit 389 home runs. Well, Yogi Berra hit 358. Uh, batting average, Johnny Bench had a 267 lifetime batting average. Yogi Berra had a 285 lifetime batting average. Yogi Berra had 1,430 RBIs. Johnny Bench only had 1,376. So across the board, uh, Yogi Berra, in, in most cases, had better statistics than than Johnny Bench. But the thing that, that blew me away, Johnny Bench, over a, an illustrious career, uh, he came to the plate... 8,665 times he came at official at bats, almost exactly what Yogi had, about 7,500 at bats. And yet he struck out, Johnny Bench struck out 1,278 times, almost in exactly the same at bats. Yogi Berra struck out 408 times. Now you could argue maybe Johnny Bench was better behind the plate. I don't know. It's kind of hard to measure. Uh, that kind of thing. But you ask about Yogi Berra. I remember when I was a kid, a very young kid, going to the 1961 World Series and seeing Yogi Berra on the field. You know, and he, he looked so little. He was, he was a small man. And I remember thinking, well, golly, he, he, I guess he was 5'7", something like that. And it, it just amazed me that he was playing out there with all these big guys, and he was just a, a diminutive little guy and, and had great power, quick behind the plate. But clearly, I think, a player underrated for his baseball ability because he was such a character. And that, I guess, to some degree is unfortunate. You know, Buster Olney yesterday on ESPN <clears throat> made the comment that he thought that Yogi was the second greatest catcher behind Johnny Bench. You've already given the stats as far as hitting is concerned. Where do you place Yogi as far as catchers are concerned all time? Well, if, if you, I think that question is best answered. Is if you were playing in the World Series, an important series, who would you want to be your catcher? Now, I just, I just listed the statistics. What I don't know is how Johnny Bench compared defensively, I, I would assume that he was a stronger defensive player than Yogi. I don't know that to be the case. But Yogi Berra was a winner, and Johnny Bench was a winner. But in a big game, uh, look at the strikeouts, uh, look at the production. Uh, Yogi Berra, I, I think maybe it's 1 and 1A. One I, I don't know. But Yogi Berra doesn't have to take a back seat to anybody, including Johnny Bench, just based on statistics alone. He was clearly, clearly a superior catcher offensively to Johnny Bench in many, many areas. And uh, if, you, if you make the argument that Johnny Bench was a stronger defensive player, you can make that argument. But obviously, Yogi Bear was pretty good at that, too, to win 14 World Series. Mark, Yogi, 14 World Series. You know, Yogi was involved in two 
of probably the most famous plays in the World Series in the 1950s. One was the stolen base of home by Jackie Robinson. Yogi died swearing up and down that, that Jackie Robinson was out on that play. I'm not trying to, to pick on you about your age, but do you remember that play? I remember that play, and I know the other one you're talking about is when he leaped into the arms of Don Larson yes. in the 56 Perfect Game World Series. And clearly those were, were two iconic moments. And uh, I, I remember seeing interviews with Yogi. Um, the last time I saw Yogi Berra, it, it was at a writer's uh, New York. Uh, uh, must have been 2005 or six. Uh, he was on the dais uh, with a bunch of writers and Hall of Fame players, and they were giving out the MVP and the Cy Young and all that stuff. And I just, I wasn't. I think he was sitting next to Sandy Koufax, as a matter of fact. But I remember again thinking how small he looked. Like he could have never been a professional athlete. Yeah, and uh, but you're right. When you think back to great Yankee teams, uh, you think of Mickey Mantle, you think of Roger Maris, you think of all the great players they had. But Yogi Berra was always there. He was the guy who who was the glue. And uh, people forget he went on to manage. He went on to coach. His career didn't end when he hung him up. He, he quit playing. I think it was 1965. He quit something like that. Yeah, yeah, right, right in so, there. Where, where do you place him? Yeah. You know, only also said that, you know, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, and Mickey Mantle, and then came Yogi Berra, as far as he's concerned, with the five greatest players of the New York Yankees era. Where do you put Yogi in that that totem pole? Well, clearly he had to be one of those five. Uh, you know, there's so much talent on that list; it's kind of hard to. To, uh, to rank them, but, you know, Yogi, he, again, he was the glue that kept everything together. He handled that pitching staff, and we're, you know, we're teasing about how short he was, but, you know, there's something to be said about a short catcher, because the glove is lower to the ground, it's easier for them to keep the ball low, he was very quick behind the plate, and, you know, when you're ranking the top five Yankees of all time, again, I, I don't know how you separate those things, it's all subjective, but... Uh, I would argue that Yogi was on the field more than any of those guys and uh, contributed to the Yankees' winning over a, over two decades. You know, and you brought Maybe it up more than anybody else. Right, and you brought it up earlier about how he had managed. He managed the 73 New York Mets to the seventh game of the World Series, and he managed the, the 64 New York Yankees to the seventh game of the World Series before both teams lost. He was no slouch as a manager either, was he? No, Yogi was a lot smarter than he let on, and you know part of that was a shtick he played, you know all the the, the weird quotes and things like that, and and I, I think he played the press, got a lot of got, made a lot of people laugh in the locker room, but I I don't have it in front of me, but it would be very interesting to see what player over the history of baseball played in more winning games than Yogi Berra. Now, Pete Rose played in more games and, and won more games, I think, than anybody. But in, in playoff games, I bet Yogi Berra has won more playoff games than any player. I just, just when you think about all the World Series he was in and how many times they won, and even if they didn't win, in most cases, they went to the seventh game. So, you know, Yogi was a special player. Uh, and, you know, I heard something today on, on WLW just before the Reds game. And the guy said, 
I defy anybody to come up with a quote that is negative about Yogi. Everybody liked Yogi. And, again, some of that, because he was so well-liked and he was, he was funny, he was iconic, look at the numbers. This guy could play. And that's what got me when I, when I looked at those numbers, how he compared to supposedly the greatest catcher of all time. And his best friend was Joe Garagiola, who really, although his career wasn't in the limelight like Yogi's was, they were, they were the greatest of friends since childhood, and they, they always made fun of each other. They always palled around together. But, you know, they were both from the same neighborhood, grew up together. And, you know, I have not heard anything so far out of Garagiola yet. He, he's probably heartbroken right about now. Oh, I'm sure he is. They grew up together in St. Louis. And uh, you're right, they were friends their entire lives. And I remember those when, when the heyday of the Major League Baseball game of the week on Saturday when Garagiola and Yogi Berra used to give each other grief. And you could tell, you know, by the way guys talk like that to each other, always giving each other a hard time, the affection that was there and, and the good good humor and all those things. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, Yogi Berra had one hell of a life. And he died at 90 years old. And I think, you know, when you when you add it all up, I think he would have taken it uh, back when we grew up in St. Louis, wondering if he'd ever make it to the big leagues. And Yogi, Yogi, you made it, and you made it to 90. So, uh, job well done. Mark, one more question. You know, a lot was made over the last couple of days about Yogi and his blow up with George Steinbrenner in in '85 when Steinbrenner fired him as manager of the Yankees 16 games in after promising that he would let him manage the entire year, and then. Yogi never came back to Yankee Stadium for 16 years, Mark. And then finally, he, he literally, I think, was the only man that ever brought George Steinbrenner to his knees. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, people forget how many years he spent with the Mets. He, he was with that organization for a long time. And uh, while he may not have been a Yankee, uh, he was certainly a New York fan for all of his career. And, uh, again, the... The accomplishments of that career are really almost unparalleled uh, based on what he did in terms of playoff baseball and winning baseball, personal statistics. Uh, I'm not sure there's many people who can who can have a career like that. And not only that, but to stay in baseball and to do it as a coach and a manager as well. Uh, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of anybody who could match Yogi for what he did. You know, baseball's really lost an icon, haven't they? They have, and as time goes on, as these guys do pass on, uh, you know, we, we talk about it a lot on our show on Monday night, that baseball is different today. You don't have the Yogi Bears anymore. Uh, it's so corporate, and that is what is missing in the game. And, you know, <laughs> uh, the injuries these players have, and that, that would not have been tolerated back in Yogi's day, and um, you know, his his accomplishments indicate that it was a different era. and um, But, but the, the, the approach to the game is so different. When you look at even Johnny Bench, uh, the strikeouts just blew me away. And Johnny Bench does not stri- did not strike out at a rate that, say, Jay Bruce does. Jay Bruce is going to strike out, you know, 175 times again this year. He, he will strike out in three years what Yogi Berra struck out in a 17-year career. That's hard to believe. And that's just indicative of how the game has changed. 
And you know, players took pride in the fact they, they did not strike out. They put the ball in play. They gave themselves up to move a runner over, all those things that, we, that you and I value. But it's just, you, you can look at the numbers and, and kind of shake your head like, what, what game is this? It can't be the same game they played back in the 50s and 60s. Even back in the 40s, you know, Ted Williams striking out 13 times in one year. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> so, one one final question. I mean, this really has rocked the baseball world, Yogi's death. The only other people that I can think that will really rock baseball when they pass away, maybe Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, those guys, again, are what I call that iconic class. They came up in the 50s and 60s, and actually, in some cases, um, you know, they, they moved into the 70s, and, and I don't think anybody played in the 80s, but uh, that was a different era. And those guys, when they move on, uh, pass away, uh, it is going to be a hole you can't fill. And the great thing about baseball is a lot of what they accomplished was over a long period of time. And that's what makes them so iconic that they stayed around for, you know, 20, 22 years. And, you know, when you play from the early 50s into the 70s and even into the mid 70s, uh, that's a long time to play. <laughs> and people, they, they they love those kinds of players. And I don't think we're going to see a lot of that anymore, guys playing 20, 22 years. Well, we've been reminiscing with Mark Donahue on the death of Yogi Berra yesterday. Mark, thanks for joining us on tonight's show. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Dave. In 1949, early in Berra's Yankees career, his manager, Casey Stengel, assessed him this way in an interview in the Sporting News. Mr. Barra, Casey Stengel said, is a very strange fellow of very remarkable abilities. Barra's best friend since childhood, Joe Garagiola, is said to be hurting, realizing his eight decades of friendship with Yogi is finally over. To appreciate the bond is to understand the depth of their connection. Garagiola grew up at 5446 Elizabeth Avenue in St. Louis. Barra lived right across the street at 5447 Elizabeth. Now he's gone. Yogi Berra is gone at the age of 90. A couple of other items around baseball this evening before we move on to football and basketball on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. First of all, the Boston Red Sox have hired Mike Hazen as their GM. It's the first big move by Dave Dombrowski since he took over as president of baseball operations in August. Hazen has spent a decade in several areas of the team's major league operations, which include player acquisitions, player evaluation, contract negotiations, major league scouting, and pro scouting. So Dave Dombrowski says that over his 10 years with the Red Sox, Mike has proven to be an invaluable member. Hazen is 39, spent five years in the Cleveland Indians organization before coming to Boston. He held titles in Cleveland of assistant director of player development, coordinator of Major League Advanced Scouting, and assistant director of pro scouting. Let's move on now to the divisions and the standings for Major League Baseball heading into tonight's action. And first of all, the St. Louis Cardinals have already clinched a spot in the playoffs, and they are four games up in the National League Central Division over the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are four games out, as I said, and the Chicago Cubs, who are seven games out. Now, the Pirates have also clinched a playoff berth, 
But whether or not they win the division or go in as a wild card doesn't really matter right now. They're in postseason play. The Chicago Cubs are just waiting to get into postseason play. Their magic number to get in is four. Then comes Milwaukee in fourth, and Cincinnati is back in fifth. In the National League East, it's the New York Mets leading the Eastern Division by six and a half games over the Washington Nationals. Even though the Nationals have won seven of their last ten, the magic number for the Mets to win the division is five. Then comes Miami, Atlanta, and Philadelphia. They are all eliminated. In the National League West, it's the L.A. Dodgers leading by seven games over the San Francisco Giants, and the Dodgers' magic number is five over the Giants. Arizona then comes in. They're eliminated along with San Diego in fourth place and Colorado in fifth. They're both eliminated also. In the American League over in the AL East, it's Toronto leading by three and a half games over the New York Yankees. Their magic number is eight. Baltimore, Tampa Bay, and Boston have all been eliminated in the American League East. In the AL Central, it is Kansas City leading that division, and they have got a 10-game lead. As a matter of fact, believe it or not, the Royals made the playoffs and went to the World Series last year as the wild card. This would be the first time they have ever won a division championship since... The divisions went to three back in 1992. Of course, Kansas City has got a two-game, uh, a ten-game lead, and their magic number is two over the Minnesota Twins. They've already eliminated Cleveland from the divisional race at 74 and 76. Then come the Chicago White Sox and the Detroit Tigers are in last. Finally, out in the American League West, it is Texas leading the division by three games over Houston, and the Rangers' magic number is eight. They've won eight of their last ten and two in a row. Houston is also a game and a half up on the L.A. Angels, who are in third. Then comes Seattle and Oakland. As far as the wild card situation is concerned in the National League, Pittsburgh leads by three games over the Chicago Cubs, and the Cubs lead by nine and a half games over the San Francisco Giants. So even though Pittsburgh has clinched at least a wild card and the Cubs are nine and a half games up, the Cubs' magic number to clinch the wild card spot is two over the Giants. Now, over in the American League, things are rather different. The New York Yankees and Houston Astros are in the wild card spots right now. The Yankees with the top spot, they're four games up on Houston. Then Houston is a game up on Minnesota, a game and a half up on the L.A. Angels, four games up on Baltimore, and four and a half games up on Cleveland. Cleveland's magic number to be eliminated is seven. Houston's magic number to clinch at least a playoff berth is 10. Now, in a couple of series that are going on this weekend in Major League Baseball that we should keep an eye on, first of all, the Pirates will be in Chicago in the Windy City taking on the Cubs. Those two teams are odds-on favorites to be facing off in the wild card game two days after the regular season ends. And then the Rangers will be in Houston. That's going to be a battle for first place. As we said, Houston just three games out behind the Rangers right now in the American League Western Division. Another busy weekend with the NFL. There's a game tonight. We'll get into that here in just a little bit on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad to have you along this evening. The Cam Chancellor holdout was as rare a player club dispute as there is in the NFL. 
a player withholding services under his contract into the regular season. It's hardly ever done. And while we see many players dissatisfied with their contract situation, and believe me, there are many more throughout the league than we hear about publicly, the vast majority of disgruntled players capitulate well before the real play begins. Training camp pay is basically just per diems. With this history and the lack of a real threat from the players, most teams barely shrug off off-season discontent. Chancellor has done what the overwhelming majority of players would never do. He took his protest into the regular season when the real money is triggered. But Chancellor came back to the Seahawks on Tuesday. Peter King talks about why he ended his holdout. I think it's that Cam Chancellor saw that after losing $540,000 at least, and it may be significantly more depending on uh, what happens with incentives and what happens with the fines and whether the Seahawks choose to collect those. And I know there are some, you know, in the organization who think that they ought to play this totally by the book to to discourage future holdouts. But having said that, this all happened, and he came back in because, no matter what anybody says, because Cam Chancellor realized that John Schneider, the general manager, and Paul Allen, the owner of this team, were not going to budge and were not going to redo a contract that had three years left on it. We at the MMQV ran a column by Robert Klemko um, a week or so ago about how, uh, hey, here's Cam Chancellor's side in this. I think Klemko had some empathy for Chancellor. Um, and so he wrote it. and. There was no question that the reaction to that column was basically, you're nuts. Um, he's got three years left, and this was from Seahawks fans who didn't want the Seahawks to give in. So I think the majority of people in the Pacific Northwest viewed that this was, uh, this, if you're gonna, if you're gonna affix blame, that this was Chancellor's fault and certainly not the Seahawks. There really is no guarantees in an NFL contract. Yeah, there is some guaranteed money. A lot of it is basically a signing bonus that teams get give their players. and That's the only thing that is counted against the cap until you actually pay the player. But from year to year, a player gets a salary, and the teams are at liberty to just cut them any year. If they've got a five-year contract, they could cut them at the end of year two and still only be liable for the signing bonus that they gave them. That's why a lot of players would like to to sit out a lot more, like Peter King was talking about, but they don't because of that guaranteed money. They want to make sure that they do get a chance to get more over and above what that guaranteed money is. Well, Hall of Fame quarterback Fran Tarkenton is apparently very impressed with a couple of quarterbacks. First of all, Titans rookie quarterback Marcus Mariota in fact, the former Viking star and NFL Hall of Fame member is so impressed that he penned an open letter to the young player this week. And he also seems to be impressed with current Vikings quarterback Teddy Bridgewater. Mariota tied Tarkenton's record for touchdown passes in a first career start two weeks ago in the Titans' win over Tampa Bay. What was perhaps the most impressive thing about Mariota's accomplishment, though, is he tied the record that has stood since 1961 by tossing his four touchdowns in one half. Tarkenton's record was set in a full four-quarter game. Tarkenton joined CBS Sports' Doug Gottlieb to discuss Teddy Bridgewater's performance with the Vikings and why he wrote the letter to Marcus Mariota. 
Uh, he played really well for a rookie last year. Uh, it's hard to do in this league to come in as a rookie and play, but he did. He played well. Now he's got Adrian Peterson to help him. The team is better around him. Uh, the whole team just uh, sucked in the first game against the 49ers. Got beat 20-3. to They just didn't show up. That happens in football. He came back last week and had a really important win. And even in the early part of the season, he played great. He's a leader in the clubhouse. The stage is not too big for him. Uh, that's important. So many quarterbacks that don't make it, the stage is too big for him. Teddy Bridgewater is, uh, is, is, is a good player. He's, he's gonna, he's, he's making it as a quarterback. He'll get better every year. So you're a buyer. You're a buyer long-term in, in Bridgewater. Oh, I'm a buyer of Teddy Bridgewater for sure. All right. In the Tennessee, and you, you wrote an open letter to Marcus Mariota, and it was, um, and, and you, you, you know, you basically congratulated him on a remarkable day, a great day to, to yeah. open, open his career and said, not every day is going to be like this. Uh, why'd you write the letter? Well, because, you know, uh, he's the only, he's the only, he's the second guy in the history of the National Football League that threw four touchdown passes in his opener. And I happened to be the other guy that did right. back in 1961. And I also ran for a touchdown. And I, you know, I think what it showed, I mean, he had a little chip on his shoulder because they said he, he wasn't pro ready. Every scout, every pundit, he wasn't pro ready because he got the, place from the sideline in college and he stood behind the huddle he wasn't in the huddle right. he took snaps from a shotgun didn't get behind the center and Jameis Winston was more ready and he proved that he was plenty ready Jameis Winston was the one that didn't play well he did and I think that what you saw in him this is a guy that gets it is he going to have bad days we all have bad days but he showed us in this first week of the season that he gets it and he's going to be a really special player to his credit Jameis Winston came back this past weekend and played a lot better than he did in the first week. And Marcus Mariota had a tough day against the Cleveland Browns last Sunday, which leads me to the Cleveland Browns. Even when something goes good for the Browns, they manage to find a way to screw it up. And they've done it again, just as they've done again and again and again since returning to the league in 1999. This time, what have they done? Well, as you know, I've never been a big Johnny Manziel fan. Never will be. Don't want to be. I don't think he is the Browns' answer as the quarterback. But, that being said, the decision to start Josh McCown this weekend is one of the worst decisions that this coaching staff under Mike Pettin has made in their one year and this Sunday three games since they've been at the helm. Obviously, Jimmy Haslam is putting pressure on them to start Johnny Manziel. But what comes to mind with this decision to go with McCown, since he has passed the concussion protocol, is that the coaching staff does not believe their owner. They don't believe him one iota. Jimmy Haslam said in the offseason that this Browns coaching staff would be back next year no matter their record. They could win one game, two games, they would still be back next year. This decision proves to me that they don't believe that. They think that if they only win two or three games, they won't be back next year to start reaping the benefits of what they're sowing over these past two seasons. Their decision to start Josh McCown is just that, a decision that makes this team want to win now. 
Johnny Manziel did not play a great game last Sunday. He was 8 for 15 in the passing department. Yes, he had two touchdown passes. Yes, they were long touchdown passes. He did a good job escaping the pocket when he had to. But again, he had the same problem that he has had all his career. He doesn't come up with the proper play at the proper time. He constantly wants to run instead of staying in the pocket. And thirdly, he's got something called fumbleitis. Whenever he gets hit from the blind side, he coughs up the football. He did it twice in the game against Tennessee last Sunday. The Browns were just lucky enough to pounce on them. Manziel is the type of quarterback that is never going to be great. He's probably not going to be good. He'll be mediocre, which is pretty much what he was last Sunday. Yeah, the team won. Yes, he threw two touchdown passes. But Calvin Benjamin looked just as good. Travis Benjamin looked just as good as Johnny Manziel did, and Benjamin made Manziel look great. The thing that got the Browns going was their running game last week. Duke Johnson and Isaiah Crowell were able to run the football effectively. That brought the safeties and the DBs up into the box so that Tennessee could stop the run, and that gave Benjamin the opportunity to fly downfield. Now, if the Browns had more wide receiver playmakers, that game could have been even worse. But, of course, Ray Farmer, who's on self-imposed, not self-imposed, but NFL-imposed vacation for another two games, doesn't believe in the fact that the Browns need a wide receiver. Just doesn't believe in it. So the Browns made, are making a mistake. This is their number one pick. This is the guy they're hanging their hat on over the next ten years to lead this team. As I said, he didn't play great. He didn't play good. He didn't play well. He played decent. He did nothing in last Sunday's game to warrant being sent to the bench, except for the fact that this coaching staff is worried for their job, and I believe that's why Johnny Manziel is going to start is going to start this Sunday on the bench when the Browns are at home taking on the Raiders. That game is going to be at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. It will be on CBS. I've got the Browns winning this game, even though the Raiders are coming off a big victory over the Baltimore Ravens at home last weekend. Tonight, the Washington Redskins, 1-1 one one on the year, are going to New Jersey to take on the Giants, who are 0-2. The Giants have started the last three seasons 0-2, and in 2007 they started 0-2 and ended up winning the Super Bowl. Tonight, you're not going to see RG3 unless there is an absolute emergency and total meltdown by the Redskins, but you will see Eli Manning as the quarterback of the New York Giants. My pick tonight, well, I think the Giants are going to win their first game of the season. Now here's a look at the games at 1 o'clock on the NFL schedule this Sunday. At 1 o'clock on Fox, the Atlanta Falcons will be in Dallas taking on the Cowboys, who are without Des Bryant. They're without Tony Romo. Brandon Whedon is going to be the quarterback, and quite possibly Matt Castle will be in there for the Cowboys also. I'm still taking the Cowboys to win at home in this one. On CBS on Sunday afternoon, the Indianapolis Colts will be in Tennessee taking on the Titans. I think the Colts win this game, which would be their first victory of the year. At 1 o'clock on CBS also, the Cincinnati Bengals go to Baltimore to take on the Ravens in an AFC North Divisional title tilt. I think the Bengals 
who are 2-0 and now, are playing some great football, but the Ravens have a sense of urgency. I take the Ravens to win this game. The Patriots host the Jaguars on CBS at 1 o'clock. Patriots win this one in a big way. The New Orleans Saints will be in Carolina taking on the Panthers. I'm going on the assumption that Drew Brees is not going to play. Brees says he will. I don't think he will. So I'm taking the Panthers to win this game in Carolina. That game's on Fox. Also on Fox at 1 o'clock, the Philadelphia Eagles will be in New York taking on the Jets. Yes, I know the Jets are 2-0. and Yes, I know the Eagles are 0-2. I'm still taking the Eagles over the Jets until the Jets prove to me that they can beat a team that's any good. I'm going against the Jets. Also at 1 o'clock on Fox, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Jameis Winston go to Houston to take on the Texans, and they'll take on Ryan Mallett, Brian Hoyer, and anybody else that the Texans decide to play at quarterback. Still and all, I think the Texans end up winning this game. On CBS at 1 o'clock, the Chargers will be in Minnesota taking on the Vikings, who are mascotless, and we'll talk about that in just a second. I've got the Chargers winning this game. And also at 1 o'clock, rounding out that time slot, the Pittsburgh Steelers are in St. Louis to play the Rams, and I've got the Rams beating the Steelers, which means the Steelers would go to a 1-2 and two start. There's one 405 start on Fox. That is the 49ers in Arizona taking on the Cardinals and Carson Palmer, and I've got the Cardinals winning that game. At 425 Sunday afternoon on CBS, both games on CBS, the Buffalo Bills will be in Miami to play the Dolphins. I've got the Bills winning this one after a heartbreaker to the Pats last week. And the Bears will be in Seattle playing the Seahawks. Both teams are 0-2, and I've got the Seahawks winning this one. At 8.30 on Sunday night on NBC, the Denver Broncos are in Detroit to play the Lions. I think Peyton Manning started hitting his stride in the game last Thursday night against Kansas City. I think he continues that this Sunday, and the Broncos win big over the Lions. And finally, on Monday night on ESPN at 8.30, it will be the Kansas City Chiefs in Green Bay taking on the Green Bay Packers, and I have got the Packers winning that football game in Green Bay on Monday night. Well, here's a question that I have never, ever been asked about NFL football. How much do the mascots really make? It's reported per a source that Ragnar of the Minnesota Vikings made $1,500 a game last year. Well, the Vikings went into this past offseason looking to change his role and perhaps take him out of game day situations. And from any understanding that has been reported, Ragnar countered with a financial proposal that would have paid him $20,000 per game. You know who Ragnar is. He's the guy that rides around on the motorcycle at the Minnesota games. He's dressed up like a Viking. He wears the horned hat. He's got the beard that hangs down to the middle of his chest. He's just an imposing-looking figure, and he wants $20,000 per game to continue being their mascot. Well, when he asked for that amount, Minnesota kind of said, thanks, but no thanks. Ragnar, and his real name, by the way, is Joe Gerantich, has been unavailable for comment. But then again, reports are saying that our close to the negotiation that Ragnar, the Minnesota Vikings mascot, is now trying to get his job back. But the Vikings are saying no, and fans are furious. Christina Balboni 
reports. The Vikings may have won on Sunday, but the loss of Ragnar is sending their fans into a tizzy. The Vikings mascot who rides a motorcycle around and pumps up the crowd. Apparently, old Ragnar wanted a sweet 20K per home game to continue his mascot services, but the Vikings thought that was a little steep and released a statement saying the two sides just couldn't agree. The fans are not happy about it and started a petition to get him back. It nearly has 10,000 signatures already. Personally, I don't think 20K is that unreasonable for him. It probably takes way more than that to keep the spear looking good. Not only a busy weekend in the NFL, but a busy weekend around college football. As always, we are in the throes of the college football season. And there's a lot of action going on around the top 25 college football scoreboard this week. First of all, there's some games going on on Friday night. Actually, just one game. And that has number 21, Stanford, playing at Oregon State. Stanford 2-1, and one, Oregon State 2-1. and one. Oregon State is a 15.5-point underdog in that game. It's going to be on Fox Sports 1, and that is at 10 o'clock on Friday night. So when you're done watching your high school football game or listening to it here on Ultimate Sports Talk, you can tune into that game on Fox Sports 1. Now, the games that are going on on Saturday afternoon. First of all, the Ohio State Buckeyes and Coach Urban Meyer had a matter-of-fact response when he was asked why Cardell Jones is still the starting quarterback of the top-ranked Buckeyes. Urban Meyer explained why. Not one is beating out the other, and they're not playing great. So once again, if that's an excuse, which I call it an excuse of how can you perform with someone looking over your shoulder. Um, NFL quarterbacks do. I've never had one not. We've always had a backup quarterback. just happens the backup quarterback here, whoever it may be, is really good. Jones has started all three games for the Buckeyes, but Meyer pulled him in each of the past two weeks against Hawaii and then last Saturday against Northern Northern Illinois because he was just ineffective. While he conceded the latter point, the coach stressed the blame for the offensive struggles should not fall entirely on quarterback. As far as how secure Jones' hold on the starting job is, Meyer was not entirely clear. And the Buckeyes are going to take on Western Michigan to try to hold on to their number one spot in the nation this weekend. That will be on Saturday at Ohio Stadium. The game is going to either be on ABC or ESPN2, depending upon where you're at in the country. And that will begin at 3.30 Saturday afternoon. Now, elsewhere around the country on Saturday at noon, number 20 Georgia Tech is at Duke. Also at noon, Southern will be at number 7 Georgia. Brigham Young, number 22 in the country, goes to Michigan to take on Jim Harbaugh and the Wolverines. And Central Michigan goes to number 2, Michigan State. You know, this has really got to be a slap in the face to the SEC because the number 1 team and the number 2 team in the country this week are from the Big Ten. Elsewhere at noon, LSU, number 8 in the country, will be at Syracuse. And let's switch now to the 3 o'clock games. Rice will be at number 5, Baylor. It is Massachusetts playing at number six, Notre Dame. That's at 3.30 on NBC. Elsewhere, it's Oklahoma State playing Texas. That's at 3.30. Oklahoma State, the number 24 team in the country. Alabama has dropped to number 12 after their loss to Mississippi last week, and they are playing Louisiana Monroe. That is at 4 p.m. Elsewhere, at 4.45, 
Well, this is going to be a toughie. TCU, number three in the country, will be at Texas Tech. Both teams are 3-0. and And Matt Millen, who's doing the game for Fox previews, that ball game between TCU and Texas Tech, and he thinks the Red Raiders may pull off the upset, but don't expect it. Uh, normally I would say flat no, uh, but I think this one might be, and here's why. Gary Patterson has, he's one of the best defensive minds in all of college football, and maybe the best. And the problem is right now, he's lost a lot of his players. He's lost a lot of starters off that defense. Now, you know, next man up, you got to play. They'll score points against, uh, against uh, Texas Tech. Texas Tech generally is not a great defensive team, but Texas Tech will score some points, and it'll be interesting to see how Patterson is able to kind of knit together the rest of what he has to be able to stop that air attack. But I think the answer to that question is TCU wins. TCU right now is a six-and-a-half-point favorite heading into that game against Texas Tech. Elsewhere at 7 o'clock on Saturday night, number 14, Texas A&M is a seven-and-a-half-point favorite over Brett Bielema and the Arkansas Razorbacks. Also at 7 o'clock, Vanderbilt will be at number three, Mississippi. At 7.30, it is number 25, Missouri, playing at Kentucky. And did you hear about Kentucky and their new rule for all of their athletes and some of the students? They are not going to allow them to play any of the online fantasy leagues. That means DraftKings, FanDuel, any of those if they find out that any of their athletes for certain and some students play in those leagues, it's an automatic one-year suspension. Elsewhere, at 8 o'clock on the Big Ten Network, Ball State will be at number 17 Northwestern. Northwestern 3-0 and on the year. And Hawaii is playing at number 22 Wisconsin. That game is also at 8 o'clock on the Big Ten Network. Wisconsin a 24.5-point favorite in that game. Well, elsewhere, the... One of the games this weekend where two top 25 teams are playing, number 9 UCLA, 3-0, and is going to number 16 Arizona. Arizona also 3-0. and That's at 8 o'clock, and it will be on ABC. And Stuart Mandel looks at UCLA's chances against Arizona after freshman quarterback Josh Rosen struggled in Week 3. Division titles don't get decided in September, but the two best teams in the Pac-12 South may well be facing each other Saturday night in Tucson. UCLA's freshman quarterback Josh Rosen could not have had a more spectacular debut against Virginia a few weeks ago. However, last week against BYU, he threw three brutal first-half interceptions. He cannot afford to make those kind of freshman mistakes on the road against a really good Arizona team. But UCLA does have running back Paul Perkins. Nobody's been able to stop him so far, and I'm not very confident that Arizona's defense can do any better. The other thing is, while Anu Solomon, Arizona's quarterback, has been very good so far this season, he has not been tested yet by a defense the caliber of UCLA's. The Bruins are extremely athletic and fast, especially at linebacker. They should be able to get pressure on Solomon all night, and I think UCLA goes to Arizona and wins this game. Well, elsewhere Saturday night at 8.30 on ESPN, it will be number 18, Utah, 3-0, going to number 13, Oregon, 2-1. Oregon coming off of that loss to Michigan State. They are 11-point favorites, and Joel Klatt of Fox Sports previews this game between Utah and Oregon. Let's start with Oregon, because Vernon Adams split reps last week Mm -hmm. in preparation for that game with Jeff Lockheed. 
That tells me that he was at least well enough, probably 80% to practice and would have been 85, 90% at the game. But they knew based on their opponent that they didn't need to uh, risk further injury to Adams. So I, I fully expect Vernon Adams to play this week against Utah, and they're going to need him. Because Utah, regardless of who they start at quarterback, they're going to be sending a very experienced player out there. Kendall Thompson is yep. the backup quarterback who's been playing now with Travis Wilson out. And Travis Wilson may be back. Uh, and, and you just With Utah, it comes down to this. They're going to run the football between the tackles and right. be very hard-nosed about it. They're going to play great defense in the front seven. And when you think about the teams that Oregon has had trouble with, what do they do? They run the football between the tackles, and they play great defense in the front seven. Specifically, they can run and tackle in space. I think Utah is going to have a little uh, advantage, at least in that position on the field with Oregon. That's going to be a fantastic game Saturday night. Oh, I think that's going to be a fun one, Utah at Oregon. And finally, rounding out the top 25 college football schedule for this weekend at 1030 on ESPN. Southern Cal, number 19 in the country, goes to Arizona State. Both teams are 2-1. and one. Southern Cal, a 5.5-point favorite in that one against Arizona State. Hey, we're just a couple of weeks away from the training camps opening around the NBA. The Cleveland Cavaliers will open up next Friday, and one of their former players is Anthony Bennett. Remember Chris Grant took him as the number one pick just three years ago overall in all of the NBA? Well, Anthony Bennett then was traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves last year in part of that deal for Kevin Love. Well, he has reached a buyout agreement with the Minnesota Timberwolves. So what team will Anthony Bennett sign with? CBS Sports' Doug Gottlieb discusses that. I mean, everybody says, well, the Sixers, you know, because it's a land of misfit toys. I think Cavs could make sense because he does have some sweat equity there. Um, and he's like the 20 years old, man. Um, I think Portland's where he ends up going, though. You know, obviously, look what they lost. and They're still trying to figure out what they want to do at the power forward position. You know, Myers, Leonard, one of their potential options. I, I think uh, Portland going young is, and the fact they have really good guards, I think that probably makes the most sense. Well, concerning Tristan Thompson tonight, there seems to be co- some conflicting information surrounding a reported three-year deal with the Cavs. ESPN's Chris Broussard cited NBA sources confirming that Thompson will sign a three-year, $53 million contract to stay with the Cavaliers. However, Jason Lloyd of the Akron Beacon Journal reported no such deal exists, and the Cavaliers are not interested in a deal involving those terms. Thompson, of course, has been involved with what has been a comical contract stalemate between the Cavs and his agent, Rich Paul, throughout the entire offseason. Now, whether or not this has gone down, nobody knows, but we'll be keeping an eye on it to find out if and when Tristan Thompson does sign on with the Cavaliers. Elsewhere around the NBA, months have passed. For Julius Randle, his fractured leg has mended, and still he is looking for leadership on the Los Angeles Lakers. Is he going to get around, get along with Kobe Bryant? Well, we'll know sooner or later as their training camp will open up also. But what else is happening? Well, the Los Angeles Lakers today decided that they were going to go out and bring back a former player of their own, that being... Meta World P. 
Peace. He is back with the Los Angeles Lakers, and he will be playing with Julius Randle. World Peace says that he is definitely intrigued by what Julius Randle brings to the team, and he has signed a one-year deal to come in and try to tutor him along with Kobe Bryant as they try to turn the reins over of the franchise to Julius Randle. Now, finally, around the NBA, Miami Heat forward Chris Bosch says that he is healthy. Remember, last year he had to leave the team just after the All-Star break, but he said he no longer needs to take blood-thinning medication as part of his treatment regimen for a blood clot, meaning he's going to be able to fully participate when training camp opens for the Miami Heat next week. Bosch missed the final 30 games of last year after a clot was discovered on his left lung. He says he has been cleared and released for contact again. Hey, coming up tomorrow night on the Ultimate Sports Talk Dot com radio network. We have got high school football action for you beginning at 6 o'clock with Golden Bear Rewind. The Bears, a very disappointing loss to the Norwayne Bobcats last Friday night by a final score of 47-41, a game which saw the Bears blow a 38-20 halftime lead. You'll hear the final nine minutes of the last quarter of that game coming up on Golden Bear Rewind tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. At 6.30 is the PNC Bank pregame show. We'll talk with Matt Zerker, have the homecoming queen ceremonies for you, and then at 7 o'clock is the kickoff where the Waynedale Golden Bears on homecoming, their 60th anniversary of high school football at the high school, will begin the ceremonies with the kickoff at 7 o'clock against the Hillsdale Falcons. Last year, the Falcons defeated the Bears by a final score of 13 to 7. It was a game of missed opportunities for the Bears, but they'll take their 3 and 1 record, 0 and 1 in conference play up against Hillsdale who's unbeaten and they are 1 and 0 in conference play. Again, kickoff at 7 o'clock and the PNC Bank pregame show will begin at 6:30 tomorrow night with Patrick Mitchell and I. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Thanks for joining us here this evening. Our thanks to Mark Donahue for joining us tonight and reminiscing about Yogi Berra. Our thanks also go out to you for listening tonight. Don't forget the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show coming up on Monday night at 9 o'clock. It's going to be a very interesting show as there is only one more week left to go in the regular season. The Reds have been out of it for a while. The Indians are struggling to stay in it. Mark Donahue and I will be on the air at 9 o'clock with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Don't forget to join us again next Thursday night at 7 with another Ultimate Sports Talk Show. We'll talk with all the newsmakers around the country in the world of sports. It's the Giants and the Redskins coming up in just a few minutes from the New Jersey Meadowlands. I'm going to kick back and watch that. So can you. I'm Dave Mitchell. Thanks for joining me here this evening. Until next Thursday night at 7. Have a good week, everybody. Good night. Good night.